The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 14. The President's High-Level Advisors Want Answers About Redstone. The President kept Camp David as his base of operations during the crisis. Any departure would arouse unnecessary suspicion from a number of sources. Maxwell had already called McNally and was told by his aide that the general left no message. Next, Maxwell called CIA Chief Monty and told him the president wished his help on an aid bill to Turkey. Maxwell made it clear they would need the gathered intelligence of the CIA. Monty tried to argue that the experts in that area could easily brief the president. Only by a personal call from the president did Monty acquiesce and head for Camp David. Maxwell, as they tried to locate McNally, had just reached Peabody's office and had run into trouble. Mr. President, he shouted across the room to the president, who was conferring with Curry and Neal. Yes, Clem, what is it? he said as he walked toward him. Maxwell had put the line to the FBI on hold. Mr. President, I have disturbing news. About four hours ago, Director Peabody and General McNally left in the director's private jet for an undisclosed location in the southwest. Redstone. Undoubtedly, said Maxwell as he held the receiver in his hand. Give me that phone, said the president as he took it from Maxwell. Maxwell pushed the button to the director's line as the president spoke. This is the president. To whom am I speaking? Larry, said the president, who knew Perry personally, I want the director up here at once. Where is he headed? Well, Mr. President, he said it was routine, some private business out west. Okay, Larry, get a hold of him. Good night. Clem, what is the status of our special forces for Redstone? He said as he hung up the telephone. They should be in Redstone within the hour, he reported. Get Grayson on the phone, said the president. Yes, sir. In Redstone, Arizona, it was nearing 10 o'clock. The president of the United States, let me speak to General Grayson. Yes, sir, said the driver as he put his hand over the mouthpiece. Sir, it's the president. Yes, Mr. President, said Grayson as he grabbed the telephone. General, there have been further developments. I'm ready for your orders, sir. Good. I need 100% support. What just happened was FBI Director Peabody and General Thomas McNally have just left for an undisclosed location in the southwest. If they land within a 10-mile radius of Redstone, or if they in any way come within the 10-mile radius, they are to be arrested and confined at once. This is a direct order from the President of the United States, and I take full responsibility for it. Once again, this matter is classified, General. Yes, sir, I will report to a special unit at once. When do you expect them? We left Washington four hours ago. They should be there within the hour. We'll be waiting if they come into the area, Mr. President. One last thing, General. I don't want any follow-up. Your orders, as per our previous phone call. Yes, sir. We will lead a group of 15 Special Forces men into an as-yet-undisclosed location at your direct order only. Colonel Elliott will direct the evacuation of Redstone to commence upon our arrival. Citizens will be taken to prearranged shelters in the nearest city, Temple City, which is 15 miles due north. If they ask your men what the reason is, what will you tell them? Asked the President. A transport plane has crashed in the desert, possible chlorine gas contamination. Good, I want to be sure that all orders are clear, said the President. Keep us in 
informed of all developments. He said as the convoy caught sight of the lights of town. However, the cliffs were invisible at that distance. Richards watched as the techs were approaching the final phase of the red sequence. He was dressed in his usual black uniform and looked down on the various activities as he talked to the techs by telephone. Moments before, the techs had removed the decontamination cube and in its place was a larger chrome pyramid which was moved slowly through an enlarged opening into the tube. They turned it on its side, revealing a huge vault-like door at its base. Quickly, they scampered out of the tube as Richards watched from above. If anyone tries to disrupt the red sequence, then order security to kill them at once. And if any outsiders gain entry into the complex during the red sequence, then kill them. If the project is threatened at any time, you will program the computers for destruction of this complex and the surrounding town. Do you have your orders, Frampton? Yes, Dr. Richards. Richards walked over to the wallboard and pushed a series of buttons. Then he programmed something on his wristband. The wallboard slid upward. Below was the console for the destruction of the complex. One final thing, Frampton, said Richards as he turned. Once the red sequence is complete, you will begin Operation Dunkirk. That is, providing none of the other contingencies have been used, he smiled. He looked down at the area below and continued to smile. As he flicked the switch on the microphone, he spoke to all the techs. This is Hudson Control. The red sequence will commence now. With that one sentence, he shut off the microphone, turned and walked toward the field without saying a word to Frampton. Within minutes, he was down with the techs. He waved to them, but he was not smiling. He walked at a slow pace as he looked at the floor beneath him. Finally, he reached another microphone up front, and as he spoke, his voice was remarkably passive. Today, I will embark on the ultimate triumph, he said. Hail the ultimate triumph. You have all served me with dedication and loyalty, and I am grateful to you all. He stepped back from the microphone. Goodbye, he said as he waved his arm with a quick swipe in the air and then turned and walked into the opening of the tube. The tube was sealed as he was inside and ready to commence the red sequence. It wasn't until late into the night that the director of the Central Intelligence Agency walked through the doorway at Camp David. Monty was a shot man with a high forehead and his remaining hair had been combed neatly behind. As he stepped into the room, he was greeted by two soldiers with their rifles drawn. Slowly, he glanced around at the nervous men in the room. Well, it's a pleasure to see you, Mr. Director, said the President as he amicably shook his hand. I have the information you requested, Mr. President, he said in a cool and unsuspecting demeanor. The President smiled for the first time. How are things in Redstone, Mr. Director? Redstone? Why, it's been uh, two years since we closed up Project Hudson, Mr. President said the poker-faced Monty. Knock it off, Monty. We know what's going on out there, said the senator as he crossed the room. Monty's face remained placid as he stood in front of the president. Have a seat over there, Mr. Director. As Monty sat down, Senator Bradford stared with an evil intent. Did you know that Dr. Paul Richards has a self-destruct device? 
right there at the complex in Arizona. And do you know that that device is armed with a nuclear weapon? Did you? No, Senator, I did not. Senator, interrupted the president, let's do first things first. Now, Mr. Director, we want the blueprints to that complex. The CIA chief remained silent. We know that McNally and Peabody are involved in this too, so don't feel like you're implicating them. Where's your copy? Polanski got through, didn't he? Asked Monty. That is correct, Mr. Director. Now, where's the copy? In my office safe. Have somebody transmit a copy to the FBI office in Phoenix and one over here. Well, that could be done very simply, Mr. President, but I would advise extreme secrecy in this matter. I intend to handle this with the utmost secrecy. Now, answer my question. You transmit those blueprints? Yes. Now, who do I call? You can't call. They'll only respond to my directive, said Monty. They won't respond to the President of the United States? Steam Bradford. Clem, arrange this, said the President. Also have an army courier fly the document to Grayson and send a document over here. Two men got up to call CIA headquarters, but the senator was still fuming. Wait, he said as he rose and stood up to the CIA chief. Did you know that all the workers out there at that complex have been given a drug called QPB? Well, I wasn't aware of that, Mr. Bradford. Senator Bradford. Bradford grabbed the director and turned him around. You are a liar. You lied to my committee and you lied to the president. The president and his two aides rushed up to the pair. As Neil and Curry separated the two men, the president yelled at the senator. Doug, for God's sakes, what's done is done. Let's just solve this problem. Bradford didn't want to forget it, though, and as he walked away from Monty, he kept talking. And now Richards is planning to hold the governments of the world at bay as he transports loyal and drug troops into their cities. And after he taps the water with this drug, who's going to stop him, Mr. Director? It's a matter of time before millions will gladly respond to his edicts. And you tell me you knew nothing about it. Monty turned to the senator with his usual coolness. Senator, I know nothing about this. I am, of course, loyal to the United States and responsive to its best interests. And you know nothing about this QPB. The president had had enough of the senator's harassment. Doug, I'm going to have to ask you to keep quiet or you'll be escorted from the room. Bradford sneered at all the men as he left the room. Once the call had been made to the CIA, Maxwell placed another call to General Grayson in Redstone. He put the call on speaker. General, this is the president. Your voice is being piped into the room. What's your status? We're going house by house, Mr. President, to avoid a mass panic. I'd estimate that we could have them all out of here in another four hours. General, there's a courier on his way to Redstone from Phoenix. Yes, sir. Are you alone? Yes, sir. That courier is carrying a top-secret blueprint to a government installation. That installation is located right ahead of you in the cliffs. Now, General, the next part is very complicated. It's going to sound like something out of Jules Verne. Yes, sir. The installation is surrounded by what you might call an energy field. I know that sounds like fantasy, but I assure you that it's reality. Yes, sir. The energy field serves two purposes. One, it can be used as a transportation device. Two, it can duplicate the appearance of matter. Now, I've been told that this is included on the blueprints. Do you understand? Excuse me, Mr. President, said Monty. 
This man needs some scientific expertise. We can't just go sending anyone out there, Monty. Too many people know about this as it is. Mr. President, I have a suggestion that you may kill two birds with one stone. Okay, Monty, let's have it. The agency has a man who worked on the QPB experiments, and he understands the complex, and he will keep his silence. This must be kept secret. Mr. President, if we don't send somebody out there, we'll never know what's going on. We'll never get in there. I don't have to tell you what every lost second means to the ambitions of Dr. Richards. General, we're going to get back to you, said the president as he hung up. The next four hours were hectic as Monty located the man he had spoken about, a Dr. Kamamucho, whom they had on a plane heading for Redstone. At that point, both he and Grayson were given a complete explanation of the Hudson Project and the ensuing events. In the next few hours, they and the tired men at Camp David hammered out the final assault plan. By 2 a.m. Eastern Time, they formulated the final plan, which everyone supported. Grayson and 15 of his highly trained men would enter the complex at its weakest point, the long window in the seminar room which overlooked Redstone. Kamamucho explained that the field was actually a number of interacting fields which were very intricate. However, breaking the field would be simple. A wide hollow pipe connected to an electric voltage would be inserted into the rocks. Once the field was disrupted, the voltage would be cut. The troops would crawl through the pipe and establish a foothold in the seminar room. There they would wait quietly for someone with a wristband to enter the room. The only other plan called for entering through the supply entrance in the rear of the cliffs. That was too risky because more than likely there'd be a security man or techs at that entrance. One call to Richards could level the area. No soldier was to know the true meaning of the installation. They were told the logistics and their basic task was to capture the complex. Further, they were to round up the techs in the main complex. Richards' description was given to them, and they were told that he was dangerous but should be taken alive. As for any other resistance, the president was specific. Resistance was to be met by an immediate response from their automatic weapons. His words to Grayson were, shoot to kill. After the president had given his final orders to Grayson, it was decided that he should rest in the time before the assault. Others would stay on top of the situation. He would be more helpful if he had even a few minutes sleep. He left the men and went into the bedroom for a short nap. He wasn't in the bedroom five minutes when the telephone rang for what seemed the hundredth time that night. The ever-vigilant Maxwell picked it up. Maxwell, he answered. General Grayson was on speaker. Clem, this is Grayson. We've run into a definite snag down here. Have they spotted you, General? No, it's the jet. They tried to land on the other side of the cliff less than 15 minutes ago. My men went in to encircle them as per my orders, but they took off. Carrie, wake the president. All right, General. Which way were they headed? Asked Maxwell as the president walked briskly from the bedroom. I heard it, Clem. Which way are they headed, General? West, that's all we can tell. We have no radar here, said Grayson. They can't have much fuel, said Neil. General, this is the President again. Where's the nearest base to Redstone? Mr. President, that would be Orson Air Force Base near the California border. What if they're refueled, asked Neil. That could be a possibility. What are you suggesting, Rich? I'm saying if they've refueled... They could take that jet and they could leave the country. 
And if they went to another country, the lid could be blown off this whole thing, added the president. You'll have to force him down, Mr. President, said Curry. The president could feel the strain. Now he'd have to order the death of two prominent men. He didn't like the idea. Now I can't do it. I can't kill them and have that on my conscience. And the political ramifications would be extraordinary. We'd be driven out of office. What if they start opening up about the Hudson Project? How do you think the Russians are going to react, asked Curry. Can you live with the destruction of this country? I already said I'm not going to shoot them down. Gentlemen, I think that your arguments may be premature. We haven't even established whether they refueled the jet. Rich, what do you think we should do? I think that we should monitor the progress of the flight, Mr. President. Doug, he called to the senator who was sitting alone in the corner of the room. For what it's worth, I'd force them down. Money? I'd implement uh, the following measures. One, follow their jet with a squadron of Air Force fighters. Two, get in direct radio contact with the pilots. If anything develops, you're right on top of the situation. Clem? I agree with Monty. General Grayson, what's your opinion? Director Monty's plan sounds most reasonable right now, Mr. President, but I'd leave my options open. Very well, General. I want this handled very gingerly. And I want those fighter pilots to go after that jet, but under no circumstances are they to be aware of Project Hudson. They are tracking a potentially hostile jet. That's all. I want all communications tied into this compound. When they become airborne, they'll take their orders directly from me. I'll call Orson at once, Mr. President. I would like to inform you that the operation will commence exactly at 300 hours our time, 600 hours your time. Thank you, General. Please make the call to Orson right now. Well, asked Curry, now we wait, said the president. Minutes ticked off ever so slowly at Camp David. Curry sat next to a coffee table, smoking a cigarette and nervously tapping his fingers on the wood. He had prepared emergency messages to the Soviet Union and China in case their measures failed. Monty had worked on procedures for putting all the United States forces on alert. Maxwell was with him for a short time, but was now in a discussion with the president about further contingencies. Neil and Bradford were trying to figure out what the press would be told if this thing came to light. In the midst of the discussions, the telephone rang again. Mr. President, we've heard radio communications from the jet. Peabody's words were in effect. They were flying to Cuba where they will speak their minds about the entire project. Are those fighters alongside the jet? asked the president. No, sir. They won't catch him for another ten minutes. I want communication with those pilots. Is that possible? Yes, sir. Could take a few minutes to hook up. What now? asked Curry. We have to try and reason with them first. There was a silence in the room as they waited for Grayson to come back on the line. Join us next time for another exciting episode of The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Presented by Fitton Theater of the Words.